morning, good morning. Happy 4th of July to you. Welcome to Horizon Community Church. Welcome if you're joining us online. God bless America. Amen and amen. I thought some of you might like that song. I mean, we are in Galt after all. Um, I like Blake Shelton. I like this song. It always kind of gets me a little bit pumped up. I thought it would just be the perfect song for the 4th of July. Even though, if I'm honest with you, I have to admit there are some lyrics in this song that I have no idea what they mean. And so maybe some of you country folk that like really get this can help explain to me what a Dixie whistle in the wind is or what it means to get baptized with holy water and shine. Uh, is, is that moonshine? Is that, is that what he said? How do you get baptized with the, I don't know, I don't know. But since today is the 4th of July, I felt a little bit obligated to give us kind of a, a patriotic sermon today. And so I just thought it'd be perfect to open up with God's country. I even titled today's sermon, God's Country. Now, I'm not sure if when Blake Shelton wrote this song, if he was thinking or trying to suggest that America is God's country or not, but that's what I thought from the very first time that I heard this song, that it's kind of this, this anthem singing about our country, that, that America is un, a unique and wonderful country that sometimes could be called God's country. Now, when I was a child and I grew up in church, that was a common thing that I was taught in church often, that America was in fact God's country, that this nation was one of the greatest nations in the world, that it was founded upon Christian principles and beliefs. I think even in history, I was taught that this was the main reason why America ever existed in the first place, that, that the pilgrims left England so they could be free from religious persecution, and that our Constitution and our Bill of Rights, our documents, founded on biblical ideals and principles. I was taught to celebrate the fact that we are one nation under God and that every bill, nickel, dime, and quarter has in God we trust labeled right upon it. But that kind of Christian American patriotism is not commonplace in our country anymore. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that America is just not the same country that it was 40, 30 20, even 10 years ago. And so I looked up some, uh, some survey data, and they had a recent survey they did where they went around and they just asked this question. They said, is America one of the greatest nations in the world? Is America one of the greatest nations in the world? And for those they surveyed, if they were over the age of 65... 81% of them said yes, easily. America is easily one of the greatest nations in the world. If they were ages 18 to 29, only 60%. And that's a, that's a huge drop in opinion of our country. So a follow-up question they asked was this. They said, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the position of the United States in the world today? And across the board, just the overall average, 62% of Americans said they are dissatisfied. So there is kind of a, a discontentment with our nation. And I would say that our Christian influence in this country doesn't mean what it used to. That there was a time not that long ago when being a pastor was actually considered a respected occupation. There was a time when the church 
had a voice in local and even national politics. There was a time when, when being a Christian had a larger social implication than just voting for pro-life candidates. But times are changing, and our country is changing, whether we like it or not. And so I tried to think back as I was preparing for this message, when in my life have I felt most connected to my country? When have I felt the most American? When did I have the most pride in my country? And it was a few years ago when I had a chance to go and visit Ground Zero at the World Trade Center Memorial. Now, I remember walking through the city, and um, it was my first time I'd ever been to New York, and so the whole time I'm looking up because there's just so many of these massive tall skyscrapers that I'm looking up and I'm walking and we kind of turn this corner and all of a sudden I see this massive hole in the ground. And it took me a moment to realize even what I was looking at because I hadn't seen pictures ahead of time. And then it clicked for me, this, this is the footprint of the former tower. And I walked around that square and I touched the names of the fallen And I just let the tragedy of what had happened sink in. And I remember looking up from the engravings at the crowds of people that were gathered at the monument. And I didn't even talk to anyone. But I had felt a connection with them. Together we mourned the attack on our country. And together we were Americans. I felt this, this connection to my country and this pride in my country. Now, as I thought about that experience that I had at Ground Zero, I prepared for this message. I wondered, has there ever been a time where I felt that kind of connection with my faith? When have I felt the most connected to the church? And I mean the big C church of Christ. When, when have I had the most pride in being a Christian? Have I ever felt that unspoken bond with another believer? And I realized that I had. When I was 18, I had a chance to be part of a mission trip that smuggled Bibles over the border from Hong Kong into mainland China. I don't know if you guys know that about my past, but that was an influential trip for me. And so this is, this is a picture of a young Jared, 18 years old right there, uh, and my other mission, co-mission um, missionary. And we were in China. Now, most of the time when we smuggled these Bibles into China, we would drop them off at safe houses or secure locations, and we never actually got to meet the people that we were delivering these Bibles to. But on one occasion, we had a chance to meet up with a small group of young Chinese Christians from the underground church. And they were just overjoyed to receive these Bibles. But even more than that, they were overjoyed to meet us. I remember one young man kept saying to me over and over again, brother, brother. Now, I don't know if that was the only English word he knew, <laughs> but I feel like, he, like there was this connection, like he was telling me, he was letting me know, we are brothers in Christ. And my mind just grew in this moment as I realized that the church was so much bigger than I had given it credit for. That it wasn't just this place I went to on Sunday mornings where my youth group was and my friends were, but the big C church spanned across the globe. And I had brothers and sisters that I shared an eternal bond with that I would see again surely in heaven someday and spend the rest of eternity with. And in that moment, I felt a deeper connection 
to the big C church in the kingdom of God than I ever had before. Because I knew that we were connected by the bond of blood, the blood of Jesus, and that 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 bond was an eternal one. So when I think about these two experiences, these, these juxtaposition experiences next to each other, one as an American and one as a Christian, I'm reminded of how difficult it can be sometimes to reconcile our allegiance. How are we to be American Christians or Christians in America? Even more difficult, how do we practice our faith in this country that is becoming not hostile, but increasingly dismissive of almost everything that we believe in. And I believe that there is kind of a common response for a lot of Christians, but it's actually a trap. It's a pitfall. It's an illusion of thinking. It's an oversimplification of what's happening around us. And the trap is to say, man, we just need God in America again. If we, just had, if we just had more of God in America, that, that would solve it. If we could just get rid of all the sinners in this country, just load them all up into some big caravan and send them to Canada. <laughs> like, then we would have God's country again. Or if we could just pack up all the liberals and send them to Europe. <laughs> or if you're in any of the other 49 states, they'll say, just cut off that blemish that is California and push it out into the Pacific, right? <laughs> Then we'd be God's country again. <laughs> now, this kind of lamenting, it's not new. In fact, I remember being fed some of this kind of patriotism in youth group at, at the age of 13. Uh, I was in junior high, and I, I can vividly remember the most corny Christian music video that they had us watch. And thanks to the magic of YouTube, I found it. And so I'm not going to make you suffer through the whole thing, but I want to show you a little bit of this clip. And again, this is just, this is from the 90s. This was something I was shown back in the day when I was going to church. Let's take a look. Do we have it? Of the 55 men who formed the Constitution, 52 were active members of their church. Founding fathers like Noah Webster, who wrote the first dictionary, could literally quote the Bible chapter and verse. James Madison said, we've staked our future and our ability to follow the Ten Commandments with all our heart. These men believed you couldn't even call yourself an American if you subvert the Word of God. In his farewell address, Washington said, you can't have national morality apart from religious principle, and it's true. Because right now we have nearly 150,000 kids carrying guns to these war zones we call public schools. In the 40s and 50s, student problems were chewing gum and talking. In the 90s, rape and murder are the trend. The only way this nation can even hope to last this decade is put God in America again. The only hope for America is Jesus. The only hope for our country If we repent of our ways, stand firm and say we need God in America again. 
to picture being a junior higher, right, and hearing that, that, that music video at you and seeing the angry faces of these guys and this call to just have God in America again. And there was a time when, when our worst problems were chewing gum, but now everybody's shooting each other and the world's gone to hell. <laughs> you know, they just don't make videos like that anymore. <laughs> it's probably a good thing. <laughs> But this was this message. This was the, we just need God in America again. And if you scroll through the comments on the YouTube video, there's, it's because there are people still watching this thing. Here's one of them, uh, one of the comments on the video. And it says, this song is just as true today as when it was first written. If only we had prayer in our schools and God back in our workforce and in the American flag, then there'd be more Christians in this country. Like when I was a kid. But here, guys, is why I think that this is a bit of an oversimplification of the answer, of what, what we really need in this country. Because to say that we need God in America again is to say that God is not in America now. And I don't think God ever left. God is just as much in our schools now as he was then. He's just as much in our workplaces now as he was then, perhaps more than even than ever before is God active and present in our country. And so now I know some of you might be a little uncomfortable. You're like, hey, Jared, it's July 4th, man. Okay, this is the day we're supposed to have our chicken fried and blow things up and our apple pie and our moonshine. And I know that there are churches, they'll orient the whole service around the 4th. They'll sing patriotic hymns and music. I remember my church, one time we had military soldier, uniformed soldiers carry flags down and they waved. Or I've heard of churches bringing politicians in and they give a special word or something. But <laughs> I love this country. Don't, don't get me wrong. And I'm all for fireworks over Lodi Lake and celebrating why our country is what it is. But that's not why any of us are gathered here this morning. We're not gathered here this morning in this place because we're Americans. We're gathered here in this place this morning because we've sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded that we are subjects of the kingdom of God first and Americans second. And that's the main idea that I want to get across this morning, that all nations, even the greatest of nations, are second to the kingdom of God. And this is where I think Blake Shelton actually gets it right in his song because all country is God's country. So whether we're Americans or Canadians or Germans or Hungarians, we're also Christians. And that means that we are citizens of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. Rich Stearns, he's the former president of World Vision Ministries, he said it this way, and I love this quote. He says, we are Christians first and Americans second. That blue passport, the envy of many in the world, it's only paper next to our true pledge of allegiance to Christ. And so what I want to ask this morning, what I want to explore this morning is this kingdom of God. What does it take to be a good citizen in the kingdom? How do we do this well? How, are, how do we be Christians first and Americans second? And I think one good place to start is to embrace and understand the teachings of Jesus. And one of the things I'll do sometimes when I'm mentoring a young person is I'll ask them, what did Jesus teach on the most? 
What was his number one go-to topic throughout the New Testament? And sometimes if you've been in church during a money series, you might have heard a pastor say they taught about money more than anything else. It's kind of true. It came up a lot. But actually the number one topic that Jesus taught on was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In all four Gospels, almost every time we find Jesus preaching in a public setting, he's talking about or he's preaching on or he's teaching on the kingdom of God. And I believe the kingdom of God is the most important topic that Christ preached on throughout his ministry. But it's also one that seems to be overlooked a lot. Now, in my life, for most of my time as a Christian and even in my my pastoral years, if you'd ask me, what is the kingdom of God? What What does it mean to be on mission for the kingdom? I might have answered something like, well, the kingdom of God is the place where Christians go when we die. And our mission is to just bring as many other people as we can into that kingdom so that when they die, they could be with the king too. But recently, I've been struck by the possibility that the kingdom of God is actually much bigger than I ever realized. And so let me walk you through some of those teachings I talked about of Christ. And if you have your Bibles, you can can open them to the book of Mark. We'll start here. Mark chapter 1. Now, the gospel of Mark, things kind of happen really fast. So even in Mark 1, we... We see John the Baptist preaching in the first chapter. By the end of verse 9, Jesus is baptized. Three verses later, Jesus is in the wilderness. And a few verses later, Jesus is preaching. All in chapter 1. Boom, 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 boom. And so if we look at Mark 1.14, we get this verse about Jesus. This is what it says. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Some translations say the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come near. And these two verses in Mark, they're summarizing the preaching ministry of Jesus. Mark is telling us, look, what Jesus had, his message was good. Specifically, Mark says, it was good news. And that phrase in Greek is euangelion, which means gospel So when we say good news, that Jesus had a message that was good news, we say Jesus had a gospel message. He had a good news message. So you could actually read verse 14 and say Jesus went into Galilee and he preached the gospel of God. Now Mark goes on to tell us what this good news, what this gospel is, and it's an announcement that the time has come, that the kingdom of God is now at hand, is now here. The gospel message is that God's kingdom has come. Now here's where I think a lot of us miss it. It's not that the kingdom of God is coming later. That's not the good news. It's that the kingdom of God is here now. Jesus said it this way in Luke 9, verse 27. He said, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So if you're not dead, and you're seeing something, then you must be alive when you see it. I know, really deep theology, right? (laughs) Jesus is saying, look, it's here. The kingdom of God is present. I've brought it with me. It's, It's around us right now, and some of you will see it. Again, in Luke 17, 21, he says this, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, 
The kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. You see, the disciples and the Pharisees, they didn't get it. Everyone expected Jesus to take this literal throne, to rip it out of the Romans' hands and establish this earthly kingdom like the world had never seen. And he did take a throne, and he did establish a kingdom, but it wasn't like anyone expected it to be. Jesus goes on, and throughout the Gospels, he offers example after example, analogy after analogy of what the kingdom is like. He really wanted us to understand his kingdom. And here are some of the analogies that he used in Scripture. He said, look, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a man who sowed good seed. It's like a mustard seed that starts small but grows large. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that makes bread rise. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or the kingdom of heaven is a merchant who finds a rare pearl. And with each of these analogies, Jesus spent time unpacking and telling these stories so that we could get it. What is this thing, the kingdom of God? What does it look like? What does it mean for us to be citizens in this kingdom? And he was teaching us. That the kingdom of God has a bit of a hidden nature to it. That it's not like any kingdom that our world has ever known. That, that it's a kingdom of great value. It's a kingdom that is a world-changing, life-changing discovery. That it's a supernatural kingdom. The kingdom of God is the central heartbeat of the gospel. And a gospel without the kingdom of God would not be true to the teachings of Christ. So this valuable, hidden, secret truth about the kingdom actually fits in with this larger story that's woven throughout all of the Bible. The truth that God's kingdom is present in the here and now reveals a truth that God has always found ways to be present and among us and among his people and so here, I just want you to hold on to your, to your seats as we look a little bit of a zoom out and look at the story of Scripture and we find God's radical pursuit of us, right? From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden to the wilderness, to the temple, to the incarnation, to the spirit, to the kingdom, each of these major events throughout the story of the Bible unpack a different way and a different time and a different method when God transcends through heaven in order to be present with humanity. The larger story of the Bible is that God has always desired and made a way to be with us, to be present with us. And now we live in the time of the kingdom of God. And his, the kingdom is his solution for how he is going to dwell and reveal his presence in the world today. But that's not all. <laughs> and this next part, if you've been asleep, you need to wake up because this should blow your socks off. All right? When we are in the presence of God, we share in the dominion of God. Okay, okay, church. This is exciting stuff. When we are in the presence of God, we share in the dominion of God. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 1:19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. 
And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, to the birds, to the sky, to the wild animals. In the garden, God was present with man. And man shared in his dominion over the creation by naming the animals. In the wilderness, God hands Moses the staff, which brought down Egypt and led his people throughout the wilderness. Deuteronomy 26, 19 says, God declares to you, Israel, that you will be set in praise, fame, and honor, high above all the nations that he's made, and that you will be a holy people. God's plan for Israel, for them to have his holiness because they shared in his dominion as a nation. And then through the incarnation, when Christ himself becomes the God in a bod, and he puts on flesh, and he comes down to the earth and walks among us, we again share in his dominion, this time his victory over death. So when Christ conquers death, we conquer death. Why? Because we share in the dominion of God when we are in the presence of God. And so then God sends the Spirit and we now claim the works of the Spirit. And we yield the fruit of the Spirit. And finally, God establishes His kingdom. And we co-reign with Christ the King. Woo! If we knew what that meant, if we embraced that, if we understood that, it would change the way our lives look, the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. We would have this badge, I'm an ambassador of the King. And it would change our actions. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's more than, than just waiting for a hope of heaven when we die. We've been invited to, to take part of his dominion over the world today. Now for me, I, for a long time, I didn't think about the gospel in this way. I didn't think about the kingdom of God in this way. But when I realized that we're part of a larger story of God's presence with us, that we can be marked as a new kind of people with a new kind of relationship with God and with each other, that we're called into a new kind of life, one that exudes love for God and neighbor, that God's love can be expressed through our acts of evangelism, world mission, social justice, financial stewardship, even our jobs. This is how God's plan was to fold it out to heal our planet and extend his kingdom. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves is that sometimes at, at conferences or in, in some Christian literature, the gospel gets oversimplified. It gets reduced. And maybe, maybe some of you have got put in a corner and I said to you, tell me what the gospel is. You might, you might fall into this trap of this oversimplistic definition of thinking that the gospel is simply that, that Jesus forgives sins and provides salvation. That's half true. Like, that is the gospel. Jesus does forgive sins and he provides salvation, but it completely leaves out any truth about the kingdom. There's no mention of the kingdom of God or his calling for us to join him in this dominion over the world. And so I'd suggest that a far better definition for what the gospel is is this, that the gospel is God's reign through God's people throughout all the earth. And so let me break this down a little bit this morning. The gospel is God's reign. It's his reign. And to say that God's reign is to actually make a statement about God. We're saying God is king. Not a future king for later when we die. Then God will finally be in charge of things. But right now the world is just hell in a handbasket. No, God is still king today. 
He has authority over things today. When we see injustice in the world, he wants to do something about it now because he's on his throne now. In this phrase, kingdom of God, it could be the reign of God or the kingship of God. And so when we say that God reigns today, we're saying he has a royal power directed through sacrifice and abundant love to heal our broken world. Sometimes I think how we talk about the kingdom paints a picture of a kingdom with a vacant throne. Oh yeah, there's a kingdom of God. That doesn't really change anything. God doesn't really do anything. You pray, but when you pray, only you change. God, you know, if he wants to do something, maybe, maybe not. God is a kingdom, but he doesn't really do anything in the world. The gospel is the proclamation that God reigns in the here and in the now, that he has a greater power than the authorities of our world that we could ever know. And so the gospel is that God reigns, but he reigns through his people, through us. He reigns over all his creatures, but he also reigns through us as his created creatures. We have a participatory role in the kingdom of God. Think about Christ's prayer when he prayed uh, at the Last Supper, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. We're saying that for today, that God, bring your kingdom in around us. May it crash in into our everyday life. And together, may we declare a new order. Like in the days of the Garden of Eden, or in the Holy of Holies, that the presence of God might come in around us and change the way our world looks. And so one of the helpful ways for me when I try to picture what would this actually look like if we, if we actually put Christ back on the throne and, and we began to realize and embrace our co-reign and co-dominion with God. And I think one of the ways that helps me is to not just simplify the truth of what we were saved from, but to recognize what we are saved for. We're not just saved from, but what we are saved for. Because if we only talk about what we're saved for, or from, and we don't ever talk about what we're saved for, then we miss this participatory nature in the kingdom. So let me give you an example. We are saved from death, but we are saved for life. We are saved from shame, but we are saved for glory. We are saved from slavery, but for freedom. We are saved from sin and for following Jesus. We are saved from a kingdom of darkness and for a kingdom of light. Our role in this kingdom is far more than just saying a prayer and asking Jesus into our heart. We've been invited to step into a new life, a new identity, to participate in a new kingdom. We are saved so that we might be part of his kingdom work. Because this is the gospel message that God reigns through God's people throughout all the earth. The Bible is the story of God's relentless pursuit of man and the unique ways in which he's made himself present to us in the world and his kingdom. We are not just rescued from this broken creation, but we are rescued for a new one. It is our calling into that new creation to play and be an active role in the citizen of the, as a citizen in the kingdom of God that trumps all other national allegiances that we could ever have. And so as we go forth this morning to go light our fireworks and cook our steaks, 
eat our apple pies, maybe have a little moonshine. We do so with the firm conviction that even in the greatest of countries, God has called his people to be in a greater kingdom, righting the wrongs of this broken world. And so may you go forth and have a great and safe and blessed Independence Day and play an active role in the kingdom of God. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org.